Welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am Sarah, and this is my co-host, Darcy, today. Say hi, Darcy. Hello, hello. She is guesting on the program today uh, for Miss Katrina, who had some finals she had to study for in her nursing program. Um, typically, I would say that we're a strange and slightly funny sister duo, but we can just say Darcy and I are a strange and slightly funny duo, because we're not sisters, obviously. Right. Um, but we enjoy talking about strange stuff, crazy cases, and things that make you say, hmm, that was fascinating. In other words, if it's weird, wild, bizarre, and provocative, we are going to talk about it on this podcast. So Darcy is actually someone that I have been wanting to do a podcast with for the longest time. She is a friend of mine from volleyball. We played together, or we used to. Um, We've known each other for how long now, Darcy? Mm, What year is it? Like eight years now? (laughs) Yeah, for almost 10 years, almost a decade of time. I remember... We had this league that we were both, I was running the league and Darcy was playing in the league and I remember seeing her play and just being like, oh, that girl's going to be a bitch. <laughs> and I think you thought the same thing about me. And we were right. <laughs> and we are. So we started kind of chatting a little bit and playing a little bit and realizing that we were very similar and then we started bringing drinks to the game. To the matches. Oh my God, I forgot about that. That was the we had best. Pina colada nights. Uh, that was we'd be just fucking shit housed behind the scenes, <laughs> keeping score and trying to ref games. Totally hammered. And me running a audio commentary. Exactly. Of the game. And that's why I was like, oh my God, this would be. She'd be so perfect for a podcast. And then we started listening. That was when my favorite murder came out, and we were like, oh my God, that's our podcast. That should be us doing the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Because we both love murder. We've both been into true crime. Um, and we've always kind of had conversations about it and certain like controversial topics. We'll get into it because we have some pretty widely differing viewpoints on a number of different things and lots of stuff to argue and fight about. But um, it's all in good fun, uh, right? Yeah, it's always <laughs> respectful. Like we disagree, but we neither is trying to convince the other person Right. To take our side. Exactly. Because we know we're both so stubborn that we're never going to change our point of view. We just have to agree yeah, to disagree. Much. We're agreeing to disagree. I'm too um, old and set in my ways. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background so they can kind of see who they're dealing with on the show today? Sure. So I am currently a doctorate student. I'm studying biomechanics. And uh, the area I want to study is blunt force trauma. Um, So my background is kind of in a kinesiology, exercise science, sports medicine area. And then I saw The Staircase, actually. I watched that documentary and saw um, they had a mechanical engineer testify about whether or not her skull fractures were, um, you know, appropriate for like falling or being pushed. And that's kind of when it hit me. And I was like, holy shit, that's something I can do. And it marries both my love of true crime and my love of biomechanics and studying these types of injuries so uh that's kind of what i'm doing now awesome that's gonna be super super interesting and i definitely plan on having miss darcy on the show as a regular contributor as much as she would like to contribute i know that she's got a super crazy busy schedule obviously doing a doctorate is insane with the amount of work that you have to do but i'm going to try to pull her in as much as possible because she's intelligent and the conversation is always good with her And she's able to see a lot of different viewpoints that I think some people are not as capable of. So that being said, we are going to jump right into the program today. Unless there's anything else you'd like to add, Miss Darcy? 
I'm ready to roll. So today um, we are going to talk about a few different things. Uh, we're going to start out with Mr. D.B. Cooper. And this is kind of a yes. big, right? this, this is kind of Love a this. big, big topic to unpack. And keep in mind that this show is called Bizarre and Fascinating Details. That does not necessarily mean that we are going to get into every single minute and boring little detail of the case. We're going to give you a basic and general brush up and talk about some more interesting things that we found about this particular case. So I found this great little article called DB Cooper, everything you need to know in five minutes. So All right. start out with that one. And it basically says one afternoon, a day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a guy calling himself Dan Cooper, the media was the one that mistakenly called him DB Cooper, by the way, interesting fact. Boarded a Northwest Airlines flight, which I think is really interesting because I used to love Northwest Airlines. I believe they're Delta, that's not, they're Delta now. That's not around anymore, right? No. Um, they're okay. Delta now, I believe. But they used to oh, be okay. a Northwest, um, Pacific Northwest um, airline that was back and forth from Portland and California and Washington State and Alaska. But they're not, they're defunct now, obviously. But he boarded flight number 305 in Portland, bound for Seattle. Well, in the air, he opened his briefcase, showing a bomb to the flight attendant and hijacked the plane. The plane landed in Seattle, where he demanded $200,000 in cash, four parachutes, and food to the crew before releasing all the passengers. While only three pilots and one flight attendant were left on board, they took off from Seattle with the marked bills heading south while it was dark and slightly raining. In the 45 minutes after takeoff, Cooper sent the flight attendant to the cockpit while donning the parachute, tied the bank full of $20 bills to himself, all $20 unmarked bills was his demand, lowered the rear stairs, and somewhere north of Portland jumped into the night. When the plane landed with the stairs down, they found the two remaining parachutes on the seat Cooper was sitting on and the black tie. So he left the black tie, was like, either he thought it was going to get ripped off, or I don't know what the, the deal is with that, but he left the tie. Jets, a helicopter, and a C-130 aircraft had scrambled from the closest Air Force base to follow the plane. The military was called in days after the hijacking, and approximately a hundred, excuse me, approximately a thousand troops searched the suspected jump zone on foot and in helicopters. The Boeing 727 used in the hijacking was flown out over the ocean, and the stairs lowered and weights dropped in an attempt to determine where and when Cooper jumped. The SR-71 super secret spy plane was sent in to photograph the entire flight path, but no sign of D.B. Cooper was ever discovered. Nine years later, in 1980, just north of Portland on the Columbia River, a kid was digging a fire pit in the sand at a place called Tenabar, and he discovered three bundles of cash a couple inches below the surface with rubber bands still intact. There was a total of about $5,800 um, with the Cooper serial numbers matched. And the first evidence, this was the first evidence that came to light since the 71 flight, since the hijacking in 71. The police searched the area then after that, and they couldn't really find anything else. Decades passed. Books came out, movies, all kinds of information was released, but no, they never found the guy, which I think is pretty interesting. So mm -hmm. a lot of people debate that he died during the jump. There's a lot of information kind of flowing around out there about him. What is your thoughts on this whole particular case, Miss Darcy? Well, my first thought is people used to dress up to fly. Yeah. Like, I fucking wear leggings and a hoodie, and I'm trying to wear the most comfortable things. 
because it's so miserable to fly. Um, but he had the bow tie. That was my first thought. <laughs> I mean, he was fucking dapper. Um, Sunglasses, bow tie, suit. <laughs> and so my second thought is like, so if I'm not mistaken, the kid that, that found the, the cash, he told his dad, right? And they called the police? Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I guess if you find that much money, maybe you're like, hey, something's obviously up with this. But I don't know. If you found $6,000, especially back then, would out you? Out of 200000 though, that's it. That doesn't seem like very much. Like that, that could have flown out of the bag or been lost in the bag. What I think is interesting is that there's some debate as to whether he survived or not. And they say if he was an experienced um, parachuter or skydiver, then he would have been fine. If he mm-hmm. was not, then he probably would have died. But they've never found him and they've never found the parachute, which I think is even more interesting. No yeah, I, I feel like every every few years I hear, you know, some somebody new has got this theory about how, who it was. And maybe five, ten years ago, I was reading something about somebody thinking that it was actually a woman in a disguise. Um, but I, I actually that. think not too long ago, the FBI reopened that case, didn't they? I think at various points they have looked back into it and explored a little bit more. But I think given the, the number of years that has passed since this incident... Once yeah. you have a cold case that's that old, it's almost impossible. I mean, not completely impossible because obviously they found the, the Golden State Killer after mm-hmm. all that time. So, I mean, maybe at some point somebody – the thing is somebody probably knows something. Yeah, like we could always hope for a deathbed confession. He might be dead, but maybe his son or, you know, somebody when, when they get old and have this crazy story to tell, I think would be probably the only way we'll find out who that is. Yeah. So – I think it's 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 interesting in that no real solid evidence has been found for this. So mm-hmm. who knows? He's he's probably if he survived, he's dead by now. Gotta be, right? Yeah. So and then what happened to the money? Yeah, I feel like, and again, this is something I'm just pulling from my memory, but I feel like in the late '90s or early 2000s, they were still finding some of those bills. They were. I feel like that, but. I don't know. Maybe we can go back and delete this if I'm lying, but I sh- I should probably check that. But I do feel like I I heard that story. Well, they said that the money that the kid found was degraded. So right. in order for it to be degraded, it had to have been out there for a while. So and like under mud and shit. Yeah, they said like tumbles yeah. downstream or dredging or roots or any of that kind of stuff. So yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe I made that up. You did. That happens. I'm sure you did. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> He's just been so fictionalized and like so much speculation has arisen about it. And I think it's kind of like a Robin Hood sort of thing to me. I don't feel as though I want to dislike him at all because like Mm -hmm. he didn't hurt anybody. He didn't hijack any of the passengers. He just hijacked the crew, took Mm -hmm. the money and was like later days. So like, I hope he's alive somewhere. I hope he took that money and lived high off the hog. He didn't hurt anybody. How how high off the hog can you live with two hundred thousand dollars? Two thousand seventy one. That's so, not getting you very far. Yeah, but it's not. You're not making it to twenty nineteen with off of that, off the interest. Well, maybe he had terminal <laughs> cancer and he just needed a limited amount of money for a short period of time. Now you're onto something. That could have been this whole narrative about either he had terminal cancer or maybe his wife and he needed to pay for medical treatments. Yeah. But I don't know if you can like show up paying for medical treatments in cash. 
I don't know. I think maybe he was terminally ill and, and, or had some kind of a special extenuating circumstance that was involved in this whole thing. But I always thought this case was interesting because he was a Seattle flight and yeah. I'm from the Washington state Seattle area. So I was always like, Oh yeah, I felt like a special camaraderie towards him and his plight, so to speak, because he was in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I like this one and general unsolved stories like this because it, it, you can speculate and you, you're never wrong. Like there's so many different theories we can discuss and, and we don't know that we're wrong. So it's just it's just really fun to speculate. Yeah, well, and they had like a potential of like 30 or 40 different um, suspects that people have debated through the years um, with respect to who could potentially have been D.B. Cooper, but I don't think anybody right. is really checked out on that. They've all either had alibis that came through in the end or something that kind of prevented them. But the physical description of Cooper has remained unchanged and is considered reliable, it says. But he's about 5'10 to 5'11 inches, 170 and 180 pounds, mid-40s, with close-set piercing brown eyes and swarthy skin. Swarthy skin. So he had kind of a darker complexion. And then they said only four pieces of evidence linked to D.B. Cooper have turned up from 78 to 2017. One is a placard printed with instructions for lowering the aft of the stairs of the 727. It was found by a deer hunter near a logging road east of Castle Rock, Washington, which is within the flight path of that 305. Okay. They found that in 78, which is interesting. Um, and then another gentleman found, um, he was on the Columbia River downstream from Vancouver, Washington, about 20 miles southwest of Ariel, discovered three packets of ransom cash as he raked, this is the same kid we talked about earlier, as he raked uh, mm-hmm. sand to build a campfire, um, which is interesting is, let's see here, they had been disintegrated, they were still bundled, bundled with rubber bands, and FBI agents confirmed the money was indeed a portion of the ransom, so they were divided. Have they said anything about um, like how much the money weighed in the bag or bags? I didn't read anything about that in particular. Because that would also be something to take into consideration when he's about to jump, you know? So what was also interesting is though the FBI retained 14 examples of the evidence, but this gentleman, they gave him some of the money or he kept some of the money. I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but this gentleman sold 15 of the bills at auction in 2008 for about $37,000. What? But it says, to date, none of the remaining 9,710 9, remaining bills have turned up anywhere in the world. So only a small portion. The FBI kept 14 of them for evidence, and the rest were given to this guy who discovered it. And then he sold them at auction for quite a bit of money. Wow, that's... Um, That's and then crazy. it says, in 2017, a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believe to be potential evidence that appears to be decades old parachute sha- a decades old parachute strap. So, but they don't know. I don't think there's any way to conclusively prove that that was the the strap that he used. But then they also found a piece of foam suspected of being part of Cooper's backpack. How would they know that? I don't know. It doesn't say. I mean, and, and the thing is, I'm sure that they have not released all the details of that because it's the FBI and the case is unsolved. So they got to hold something back. But it also says that in 2007, the FBI, the FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been obtained from the bow tie and it was a clip on tie. They found a DNA sample for 2001, but I'm sure that they don't have a match for it in the coded database. 
Right. I mean, they, yeah, I mean, they didn't even have a match for a Golden State Killer in there. Yeah. So, I mean, unless the guy was arrested for something else prior or after, then there's no way that they would have a match for it. So it doesn't really do you any good to have DNA samples. I mean, you can try to use it through the other databases, much like the Golden State Killer case, and locate family members and narrow it down in that way, which may ultimately be how they solve this case. That would be interesting. Wouldn't that be crazy? What if his name actually was fucking, like, Dan Cooper? That would be crazy. That would be so <laughs> crazy. But there's some other information here. It says the Bureau also made public a file of previously unreleased evidence, including Cooper's 1971 plane ticket. Can you imagine seeing that? He paid 20 bucks for it in cash. That was back in the day. I think this changed a lot of the regulations with respect to flying and, and hijacking and safety and all that kind of stuff as well. But mm-hmm. that, back then, you know, you didn't have your luggage checked. You didn't go through security. You didn't have to show ID. You could just purchase this with cash and no one would know who you were. But, um, yeah, it's very interesting. And they have, still have the, the parachutes that he chose not to use. Let's see here. Anything else interesting here that we want to, that might be bizarre and fascinating. Um, they found some titanium that had been on the tie. Uh, matching it, try to find out where he got the particular tie and the chemical companies that use the aluminum and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, the fact is, that narrowing it down in that kind of a way would probably be crazy. Like, there's no way they're yeah. going to find the guy that way. But they said yeah. findings suggest that this dude may have been a chemist or a metal a me, ugh, metallurgist, or possibly an engineer or manufacturer or manager, because those were the only employees who wore ties at such facilities at the time. So they said he probably worked at a metal or chemical manufacturing plant. Interesting. I've never heard that one before. So maybe he didn't just dress up to fly. Maybe he was dressed up because he was wearing his work clothes and he just swung on over there and did the hijacking after work. Yeah, just your classic after work hijacking. Yeah, it happens all the time, right? Who among us? So very interesting. that. It, but they also say that the evidence suggests that he was knowledgeable about aircraft, terrain, techniques, and parachutes and jumping and all that kind of stuff. Although some suggest that the parachutes that he chose from the selection they gave him kind of implies that he wasn't all that knowledgeable and he was more of a novice with respect to that. But he had to have known something about parachutes because you can't, if you know nothing, you've never skydived or done anything with it, there's no way you're going to grab a parachute and know what the hell you're doing. Yeah, I wouldn't even know how to get it on, let alone that you would need two. Right. And they said that the one that he chose was one that couldn't be steered, that just brings you down wherever. It wasn't like a oh, professional yeah. parachute either. But they said that the dark glasses he wore indicated that he had a certain level of sophistication in avoiding things that had aided the identification of a perpetrator. And he used that from the Lindbergh kidnapping case because they were able to identify that gentleman um, by looking at sketches or witness composition of, of whatever they saw when they that That case is fucking crazy. Like, because there was that homemade ladder, you yeah. know, and um, they basically found gold certificates in this guy's attic and that in that attic there were also like pieces of wood that were that same type and that had been cut to make this ladder and that's pretty much how they yeah but that case the is supposedly like what taught a lot of kidnappers and ransomers what not to do supposedly mm-hmm. and allegedly because that's how cooper also made the familiar demand of non-sequentially numbered small bills mm-hmm. and tried to avoid the mass publicity um, so he was careful about the money. He was careful about skydiving. He was careful about his escape. 
Um, and he just really had things planned pretty well, I think. Yeah, I mean, a lot of planning for sure went into that, especially to, to get away with it as long as he has. But some people say that he dumped the ransom because he knew he'd never be able to spend it. I mean, even though it was supposedly unmarked bills, they just copied this, the sequence numbers off the bills. So he knew he was never going to be able to spend it. So some people say that it wasn't even about the money. And it really wasn't that much money, right? Yeah, but what, I mean, what would be like, would that be something he knew going in? Or is that something that like, when he landed, he's like, oh, shit, I can't use this money. I need to just dump it. And no, then but everything like some, he did was for nothing. Some people suggest that he did it for some other reason. And that he basically got the money knowing he wasn't going to spend it, dumped it, landed with his parachute, and just went on back to his life, his normal life. That's crazy. I, I'm I'm very interested in that in that theory. So there's one particular journalist that has like really speculated that that's what he did. They said he, he was planning ahead. He knew he had to hitchhike out of the woods and it was easier to get picked up in a suit and tie rather than old blue jeans. So that's why he dressed that way. And he dumped the money because it was non-sequential, a smaller amount than he knew he wasn't going to be able to spend. So there's just like a lot of different like conspiracy theories and other things that are out there. Although I'm not tremendously sure why somebody would do something like hijack a plane if there wasn't a real reason behind it, like to get some money that you were actually going to spend. Yeah, and it's not like he made any political demands, which was also the, the crime du jour in the 60s and 70s. And also, people are speculating that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens may have obliterated any of the physical clues that they would have found because there was that huge explosion in 1980. So yeah. maybe they would have found it, but but for the eruption, because it's close to the eruption site of Mount St. Helens. God, that's crazy. So they say that could have either obliterated or completely covered up any of the clues. Because the yeah. huge area that just kind of blew that area to smithereens and down the trees and covered everything with ash and debris could have covered the remaining evidence from D.B. Cooper. So anyway, that's D.B. Cooper. Awesome. Bizarre and fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. All right. So this is a good point for us to take a little bit of a break before we unpack Miss Darcy's. She's got two cases for us tonight. Um, we're not going to do our usual four um, because we've got just some heavy stuff right now. So what I found, um, and we usually do like a little halftime break. It's the midway point where we have a little fun. And this is the portion of the show that we typically like to call Idiots in the News. Um, but nice. this particular article is called Delta Passengers Creeped Out by Flirtatious Diet Coke Napkins. And I found this in several different spots, but the most prominent article that I found was on the NewYorkPost.com. Um, and this came out, I believe, last week. But it's a pretty short article. I'm just going to read it real quick. Um, Delta Airlines took creepiness to new heights by handing out Diet Coke napkins that invited passengers to give their numbers to fellow flyers for some flirtatious cruising <laughs> in the skies. It says, be a little old school, write down your number, and give it to your plane crush. You never know, reads one napkin. Gross. Right? And then another one says, because you're on a plane full of interesting people, and hey, you never know. <laughs> right? Scribble down your phone number and your name. But the misguided matchmaking promotion, a collaboration between Delta and Diet Coke on U.S. flights, took off like a lead balloon, with passengers taking to social media to complain about the napkins. Someone said, napkins received by, from at Delta on Wednesday flight seem intentionally 
unintentionally creepy, especially after reading the smaller print. Swing and a miss, Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody else said, anyone else see these awful at Delta in-flight at Diet Coke napkins? There's a spot on the back to put your name and phone number to give to your plane crush. Another whoa, 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 whoa. They were like designated lines yes. like from you? Yes. Jesus Christ. Right? Another year, another user called, this is my favorite one, another user called the napkins creepy AF. <laughs> totally creepy. <laughs> Pretty sure no one appreciated unsolicited phone numbers in the good old days, and they sure as heck don't want the number of someone who has been gawking at them on a plane for hours today. Not a good look, yes. someone else wrote. And then uh, somebody from PayPal said, ship me a box of these napkins so I can use them everywhere while I sip on my Coca-Cola. Pretty please. I think that was sarcasm, though. Yeah. <laughs> the airline has since apologized for the napkin fiasco. They said, we rotate Coke products regularly as part of our brand partnership, but missed the mark with this one. A Delta yeah, insider did. said, we are sorry for that and began removing the napkins from our aircraft in January. A Coca-Cola spokesman also issued a mea culpa. We sincerely apologize to anyone we may have offended. We worked with our partners at Delta to begin removing the napkins last month, and we are replacing them with other designs. You'll probably still see them on planes because <laughs> they probably have a huge stack of them somewhere, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Gross. Just totally That is gross. so gross. I feel like that's – it was very misguided marketing because – you have like all these Twitter threads of somebody who meets somebody on a plane and then it like catches off and goes viral, you know? Yeah. So I feel like that was probably them trying to be like, Hey, let's try and start our own viral flirtation thing. But that's just gross. Gross. On so many levels. And the thing is we could do a whole show in itself on creepy ad campaigns that went totally wrong and that totally <laughs> just failed big time. Don't you think? Yes. Because there's a lot of them. There are tons yeah. of them out there and marketing campaigns and in different directions that some companies tried to go into, like, what was it? New Coke? They New tried, Coke. They tried yeah. that one little little maneuver and it just fell flat. So mm -hmm. it's it's interesting how those little, little tidbits are out there. But that was one that I found was particularly interesting just because so many people were like, this is so creepy. Yes. Did I mean was anybody a fan of it? I can't imagine somebody's like, yeah, this is awesome. I met my boyfriend that way. I didn't see any articles where anyone said anything positive about it. Imagine that's your meet cute story. Yeah, totally <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I, I met him and he wrote his number on a napkin and handed it over to me. The thing is, though, most people that crush yeah. on other people on airplanes are super creepy, though. Like, I don't think it's like a regular thing to find somebody mutually yeah. attractive who's into you and you're into them. It's got to be creepy. I did after a conference, I was flying back. Um, and I think it was the person who was sitting next to me and we started talking and he was like a dude my age and he still smelled like alcohol. Like he had just come from a night out onto the plane. But we started talking <laughs> and like, yeah, pretty much. This is what so, every girl wants. Yeah. So when we got probably to Atlanta, cause that's where I always flew through, um, back then he was like, so let me give you my email address. Like, what? I'm gonna email you. <laughs> like, fuck. <No>. Fail. <laughs> yeah. He flopped on that one. No one did. Yeah. When was this? What year? I mean, it was when I was living in California. So I feel like maybe 2012, 2013. Who the fuck offers their email address? <laughs> yeah. Here's, I, it, here's my yeah. Skype handle. <laughs> like, they don't want to <laughs> talk to you. Like, what the fuck? Don't offer Get it at all. Up on AOL. If you, right? This is my MySpace profile. 
No, oh I mean, God. if you don't want to give somebody your number, then don't fucking offer anything at all. Don't go. Yeah, like, just don't say anything. Don't, don't just like halfway. the end of the conversation. That's exactly. it. Exactly. Like call it a day and get the fuck off the plane and shut up. Like yeah. don't offer your email address because it's just weird. It's very weird. Guys better be taking some major notes here. I mean. Don't write your number on a napkin. Don't offer your email address. <laughs> There's a list. <laughs> There's a list of things you shouldn't do to, to be creepy. Okay. So we are going to jump into Darcy's first topic. And uh, what do you got for us, Miss Darcy? All right. So we are going to talk about Lori Erica Ruff. Have you heard this one? Um, I looked at it briefly. It seemed super interesting. So I'm glad it's- that you chose this one. It's crazy bones. All right. So Lori um, was married to Blake Ruff and they lived in uh, Texas in like East Texas, I believe. Um, and they've been married since 2003, um, but they had a, a, a daughter and um, things weren't working out. So he had asked her for a divorce. And basically once that happened, once they started separating, once they separated, um, he, she started sending him and his family threatening messages and emails and texts and things like that. I'm sorry, what year was that again? Uh, this was in 2010. Okay, got it. Yeah. So um, she's obviously not not doing well with the separation. Um, A little bit off the handle there. Yeah. And so Christmas Eve 2010, her father-in-law goes out to grab his morning paper and he finds her in her car in the driveway and she shot herself in the head. And so obviously that's, that's how this story starts. So basically when they go back and look through her house, they, they find this lockbox in her closet and Blake had known about this lockbox, but Lori had always just said, you're not to ever touch this. And everything I've read about Blake, he was kind of just a, okay, she said not to touch it. So I'm not going to touch it. Kind of a guy like, like just Pandora's no box. further questions. Yeah. So, so after she dies, they open this lockbox and they find um, a birth certificate for um, Becky Sue Turner, and they find some court documents that she legally changed her name from Becky Sue Turner to Lori Erica Kennedy. Um, I probably in... would too if my name was fucking Becky Sue. Just saying. Well, so no judgment. <laughs> so, hey, so, hey, so you know, she had never. She'd always been very cagey with her in-laws about her background. You know, they wanted to meet her family. Oh, uh, you know. I don't have, my family's all dead. You know, my parents and my siblings, I don't have any siblings. My parents are dead. Um, oh, where'd you go to high school? Oh, well, I just went straight to college. So I, super don't, I didn't graduate high school. She was super Yeah, amazing. so Changed super cagey. Didn't yeah. want to tell anybody any information about her. Okay. Um, so after, after they find this lockbox, they go and they look up Becky Sue Turner. Well, they find out that Becky Sue was a two-year-old who had died in a house fire in Washington State in 1971. Oh, yeah. So now they have no idea who this person was. This, you know, this was their daughter-in-law. This is their wife. They had a daughter together and they have no idea who this person was. So it starts this whole long series of speculations. And I had actually been following the story um, shortly after it happened, but there's all kind of stuff in her lockbox, And, you know, there's documentation tying her to California, Nevada, Idaho, Arizona, and then Texas, obviously, which is where, the trail kind of ends. So what they were able to find out is that Becky Sue was born in California. The real Becky Sue was born in California and then she died in Washington. And Lori, the person we know as Lori, um, had requested her birth certificate 
because back in like 88, they would just mail you a birth certificate when you requested it. There wasn't really any form of verification. So she gets this birth certificate and nobody caught on to it. Wait, wait, wait. Because... So she figured out that this little girl died and requested her birth certificate from yeah. vital and That's one of the things that we don't know. Okay. Go we ahead. don't know how she figured this out. Um, I don't know. Maybe she went to a library and like looked at obituaries or something. I don't know. So she requests this birth certificate and is mailed to her and nobody catches on because, um, when she goes and gets an ID card basically in Idaho that has her ID as Becky Sue Turner and nobody catches on to this because she's born, Becky Sue was born in California, died in Washington and she's now getting the ID in Idaho. So it doesn't raise any flags in like 88. Right. So after she becomes Becky Sue Turner, she goes to Texas, she gets her GED, she goes to the university of Texas, um, Let's see, San Antonio, where did she go? University of Texas, Arlington, which is just outside of Dallas. Um, she gets her college degree, and she changes her name to Lori Erica Kennedy. So that is a legal document. She actually went in and legally changed her name. Um, and from there, she, she meets Blake. They get married, and then, you know, we know how that goes. So Clearly, she was not good at the marriage thing or the faking who she was. Well, maybe she was a lot better at faking who she was than she was at marriage. Yeah, she was great at faking who she was. And she <laughs> married, fortunately, somebody that didn't ask a lot of questions. Like, he just accepted everything at face value. And so she was able to kind of get away with this whole situation. I wonder, was he just super stupid? Or was he just like, this girl was really manipulative and she just, like, sold a good tale? I feel like it was probably a combination of both. Because they interviewed his friends and he had a twin brother. And he said, like... He always just followed his brother around. His brother bought this kind of truck, so he bought this kind of truck. His brother went to this Bible study, so he went to this Bible study, and that's where he met Lori. Yeah. So it's just kind of a... Because when I date really... somebody, I do a full criminal background check. I, I Google them. I look at yeah. everything. I talk to their yeah. friends. I want to know where they went to school. I want to know where they have their bank Credit account. Report. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Blake uh, didn't do his due diligence here. Um before so, you married her nonetheless i do that when i'm just dating let alone marry somebody oh yeah yeah <clears throat> so i mean and to be fair this was in 2003 we were still kind of more trusting of people right but, but anyway so she dies in 2010 um and it's not until 2016 that they actually are able to identify her and the way that they identify her is like her, her real daughter. identity her legit real identity, real identity. Yeah. okay Yep. So the way that they identify her is her daughter did uh, one of the 23andMe Ancestry.com oh, things. Strikes again. But yeah, because her, you know, her her family was like, at some point, maybe she wants to know something about her mom, even if we don't know who she is. Maybe we can get some kind of information. You know, maybe medical information. Right. Um, you know, obviously she didn't have um, and things like that. And so when you do these. Um, DNA databases, it gives you the option to opt into being linked to other people that share your DNA that have also participated in this database. Have you done it? Have you done the DNA thing? So I did 23andMe, um, but I'm adopted. um, So I actually opted out of that because I'm just, I'm not interested. I don't really care. Okay. Yeah. But, um, so, so that's how I know, like you have to basically consent to being in this database where they say, Hey, this is maybe somebody you're related to. And they're in, I don't know, fuck all Florida. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so her DNA is in this database. And then there is this forensic genealogist. Her name is Colleen uh, Fitzgerald, I believe. Let me look this up. 
do, do, do. You can cut this. We need to have our very own, like, tech slash research slash producer person that does all this yeah. shit for us. They can cut it and be like, oh, yeah, okay. It's Colleen Fitzpatrick. Okay. So in 2013, she hears about this story and this person that they can't identify. Um, and she basically gets um, Blake and the daughter to give her access to the DNA that her daughter sent I'm going to be so tripping in. out if it turns out the dad's not really her dad. The girl's Jesus dad. Christ. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a trip? Like, what, <laughs> it's bro? like, well, this woman <laughs> was totally a huge scam artist. God, that would fuck you up. Right? Uh, yeah, anyway, you're not recovering sorry. from that. We digress. <laughs> yeah, so so, anyway, so she gets this, this DNA, and, you know, she's able to um, – pull out the dad's DNA and she, she has the daughter's DNA. So basically what's not the dad's is from the mom, right? Got it. Got it. And so she has this, the mom's, you know, DNA background and she puts it in ancestry.com and it finds this person. Um, and it's like a super, super common name. I think it's Michael. Yeah. His name is Michael Cassidy. And she's like, what can I do with this? Like I mean, that's a very generic Michael name. Cassidy's, right? Yeah. So she's like, I'm not going to contact everybody in an American named Michael Cassidy. This is just this. So they think they're at another dead end. Well, she kind of, she waits and waits and waits. This DNA is still in this database and she's waiting for something else to pop up. So a little while, a little while later, I think maybe a couple years later, a third cousin pops up. Okay. And so she takes this third cousin and traces that person's family tree back, you know, with ancestry, you can do like records and yeah. birth records, marriage records, all that stuff traces their family tree back. And she actually finds a branch that links to Michael Cassidy. So she's like, Hey, I'm on the right track here. So she basically finds, um, you know, close relatives at this point with this family tree and they're in kind of the the nuclear family is in um, Philadelphia. Okay. So the investigator who's been looking into all of this flies to Philadelphia and doesn't actually go and talk to that relative they found in ancestry, but goes and finds another relative from that branch Got ya. and goes to the office and is like, Hey, I don't know how to say this. Um, but there, and tells them this whole, this whole story, you know? And finally they're talking and he pulls out the picture and the relative goes, my God, that's Kimberly. Shit. Yeah. So Basically, he goes and talks to the rest of the family, the extended family, and they all agree this is somebody named Kimberly McLean. So they get, they meet her mom, and her mom agrees to a DNA test, uh-huh. and from there, that confirmed the match. So, this so her Kimberly, mom's name was Deanne. Kimberly McLean. Kimberly McLean from Philadelphia. So do you think Kimberly McLean just fucking woke up one morning and was like, hey, I'm done with this. Later days. Well, I'm glad you asked because I actually do have that information. So, so in 2016 is when they identify her, right? And so the mom, Deanne, is 80 years old. She hadn't seen her daughter in 30 years. Jeez, and this investigator is coming and saying, hey, not only did we find your daughter, but she's dead. Yikes. That's you know, so, so she, the mom hasn't agreed to any interviews that I've read, but her brother um, has. And so he provided some more information. So she'd grown up in the Philadelphia area and she had a sister. Um, and when she was in her teens, her parents divorced, her mom remarried and moved to another suburb of Philadelphia. Okay. Um, but Kimberly never adjusted. She was in a new school in a new home. She had a stepfather. She never adjusted to this. And so in 1986, she turns 18 and she leaves. And all she tells her mom is, Hey, I'm leaving. Don't come after me. Wow. 
And from there, she goes to California. She, you know, she, she gets Becky Sue Turner's ID and, and that's the rest of the story. I wonder how long the it took her to figure thing. that shit out before she found the, the fake, the way to, to fake out everyone, the way to get a fake ID. I wonder how long it took her to figure that out. I think she figured it out and like waited a while to act on it or did she figured it out and just like, Oh shit, I gotta do this now. Yeah. So, so that's the only thing is, and she becomes Becky Sue Turner in 1988, but she leaves Pennsylvania in 1986. So we still don't know what happened in those two years. So maybe she, that was the time she was researching and looking for an, you know, a birth certificate that she could use. Crazy. Isn't that the craziest story? And before they identified her, you know, there's all this online speculation. Was she a spy for like a foreign country spy? Was she like running from the law? Secret agent? Um, Was she in like witness protection? Like there's all this crazy stuff. And then it just turns out like it was just this, this horrible story of this girl who who decided she, she wanted hated to her leave life. everything behind? Yeah, she fucking hated her life. Hated her, her whole life and just and just left. I want to know what's in that box. I would love to like have access to see it and touch it and look what was actually in there. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of a list that you can see. I don't know how extensive it is. So, you know, she has the ID card, the birth certificate. Um, there's pages from an Arizona phone book. And there's like some paper with some scribbled notes that um, there was an attorney on there from California. It, the words North Hollywood police were written. And then the words 402 months. Hmm. And, and, and nobody's been able to figure that out. And they contacted this attorney and the attorney's like, I, don't know. I have no idea who this is. I think it's interesting in that I have to wonder if she wasn't a little bit like mentally ill because for someone to be able to walk away from an entire life, family, a background, a past like that, and never say another word to another person seems a little bit psychopath. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's like a psychopathy. It's certainly, I feel like, a mental illness. I mean, yeah, like the manipulation that, that is involved and in being able to pull off this story. But it's just, it's, it's such and a sad story. You're married to someone, you have children with them, and you never, ever tell them anything about this life that you had. I mean, that to me seems just crazy. Yeah, not only do you not tell them anything, but you're like, hey, don't fucking look at my shit. And then you kill yourself and take it to the grave. I mean, I've just being right. to the point where you kill yourself, you've got to have a little bit of mental illness involved in that as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just, it's such a sad story. And it's just and like, how much are we missing so that, was, that was there that we, that we're never going to know about? You right. Know what I mean, and I mean, it's just this, this, she, she went from, you know, 1986 until 2010, not being able to talk about anything that's going on. Like, you know, she's not like she can get any help. She's not going to therapy. She's not getting any help for the mental illnesses that she's dealing with. So it's just such a sad, heartbreaking story, really. Well, you can tell she's not a fucking millennial because they tell everything, including what they had for dinner <laughs> last night, <laughs> who they slept with for the last 15 years. They share everything. Putting all their shit on the Instagram. Right? But this woman clearly yeah. knew how to keep a secret. She knew how to keep a mm-hmm. big ass secret. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I'd heard about that one and, and I think I listened to a podcast about it. Um, either that or they discussed it as a, a secondary topic on one of them, but it's mm-hmm. definitely an, an interesting and perplexing case that I don't really think we'll ever know all the details about. Right. Which, and those stories are my favorite because like I said earlier, you get to speculate and yeah. you're not wrong. Yeah, you know, exactly. 
So, well, what else do you got for us? I know you got one more um, topic for us tonight. I do. And this one is a bit of a long one. Um, and it is intense. All right. So this is the Alabama bunker hostage crisis. Have you heard about this one? So this one is one that I'm not super familiar with, which is why I'm kind of glad you picked it out because I can learn a little bit tonight. So this actually happened in 2013. So both are pretty recent um, yeah. stories. So Jimmy Lee Dykes, is, he's a 65-year-old Vietnam veteran, and he lives in Midland City, Alabama. Now, I'm from Alabama, um, and I have – no idea where this is. I know it's somewhere, like I looked it up and it's Southeast Alabama, kind of near the Georgia, Florida state line, but it's very rural. Um, so he didn't have a job. He's estranged from, estranged from his ex-wife and daughters. Um, and pretty much all he did is just stay on his property and he grew vegetables and walked around. Um, from what I read, he walked around his property shooting grasshoppers with a pellet gun so as you do. Weird dude. Yeah. So in early 2012, he drove his, his uh, neighbor, Michael, to Walmart, and while he's driving, he's complaining and bitching about some new gun law, um, and he jokes about taking people hostage in a church on some random Sunday until a reporter will broadcast his views. So Michael's like, dude, no one's going to listen to somebody holding hostages. Like, you're, you're fucking crazy. It's basically, the rest of the ride home was super awkward and just silent. Okay. Um, so later that same year, Jimmy hires Michael and he's like, Hey, I need you to help me build this bunker on my property. And he tells them it's a storm shelter and that he survived all these hurricanes in Florida. And that's why he needs it. Wait, are there hurricanes so, in fucking Alabama? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Hurricanes in Alabama. Yeah. Alabama's on the Gulf. Okay. Okay. I mean, especially right above the Florida panhandle too. Okay, I've never been to Alabama. Just asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's some hurricanes, and then there's also a lot of, like, storms and tornadoes and, and stuff that come off of the hurricane. Anyway, neither here nor there. So it takes a year to build this bunker, right? And when they're finished, Jimmy's like, hey, why don't you go in the bunker and just, like, scream as loud as you can? Because I want to see if I can hear you from the outside. And Michael's like, okay, maybe this is because he wants somebody to be able to hear him. If he's in this bunker, a tree falls down or whatever. But the weird thing is, you can't hear anything from creepy. the outside. <laughs> it just sounds like this is not going to end well. Uh, well, it's called the Alabama Bunker Hostage Crisis. Um, <laughs> so, um, so Jimmy, he's been arrested um, a lot for drugs, drunk driving, assault, things like that. He had a court date um, on January 30th, 2013 for a misdemeanor. Because he'd built a speed bump on his road to slow down a neighbor. Also and a totally normal thing to do. <laughs> as, as you do. Uh, well, obviously that led to a confrontation and Jimmy pulls out a gun. Nice. So now we're going to court. Okay. Um, so when January 30th rolls around, he doesn't show up in court. And so that's what we're going to talk about now. Okay. So that's some red flags. And people are like, hey, warning bells, warning bells. Where is this dude? Yep. Yeah. So... So he lives on this kind of isolated road, um, and there's like a big clearing, um, and it goes up a hill, and it's anyways. So when the school bus driver has to drop off kids in the area, he goes up the hill, drops the kids off, and has to kind of do a three point turn on Jimmy's property. Okay. Um, and he had cleared like a path and everything, so this is a normal thing. It wasn't anything unusual, and he had actually gotten to know the bus driver and would bring him vegetables and stuff like that. Because, I mean, it's not like he's got anything else going on in his day. So, on January 29th, 
he's dropping the kids off and he is doing his turn and he sees Jimmy walking up with a plastic Walmart bag and it's got some vegetables in it. So, so the bus driver opens the door, Jimmy steps on the bus and he pulls out a pistol and he hands the bus driver a printed letter that says he has a story to tell. And so there's instructions for the bus driver to pick two kids Two well-behaved boys. Instruct them to pick two vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) I need you to pick your two favorite vegetables, (laughs) and I'm going to hold this fucking pistol to your head until you do it. No. So he tells the bus driver he's got to got to pick two well-behaved boys with no mental or physical problems and cuff them together with zip ties. So the letter says, you know, nothing's going to happen to the kids, and when my story is finished, he's going to let them go, and I'm going to kill myself. And there is audio of what happens, and you can listen to it online. Um, the Wall Street Journal has a really good long read about it, and the audio is in that story. Wait, so um, just to pause for a second, I'm going to have Miss Darcy send me the link to that, and I will put it in the show notes. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very good read. It's long, and it's got the included audio, um, but it's, it's very intense, so use your discretion if you want to listen to it. Um, so he's, he's telling the bus driver, you know, I don't want to shoot you. I need, I need two kids. And, and the bus driver says, you know, I'm sorry, you're going to have to shoot me. Okay. So Uh, who the fuck is recording this? There is, um, like a camera at the front of the bus that records noise and vision. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. And so, and that, and I mean, it's the video that's up there. I'm not exactly sure how far into this the video goes. Um, but you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. So, so, you know, the bus driver says, sorry, you're going to have to shoot me. So the kids by this point are freaked out, you know, they're behind the seats. Um, and a 16 year old in the second to last row, he's calling 911. So this audio also is available on that same website. So they have their so, cell phones then this was early enough to where they have cell phones by then. Yeah. Yeah. Late yeah. Enough to where they have cell phones. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Jimmy, he's trying to get kids to go with them. Obviously none of them are going. And he turns to this boy in the front row. His name's Ethan, and he's five years old, and he has autism. And he can get distracted, and he gets in a little bit of trouble. So that's why he sits in the front row, so the bus driver can kind of keep an eye on him during during the, the rides. Um, so he's trying to get Ethan to come with him, and the bus driver's like, he is scared out of his mind. Don't take him. Don't take him. And, you know, he's yelling at the, at the bus driver and he says, you know, don't, don't do it. I don't want to shoot you. I don't want to shoot you. Why and the bus driver's trying take to take the bus him. driver? Just take the fucking bus driver. Uh, well, we'll get to that. So, okay. so basically the bus driver is trying to keep him from taking this kid. Um, and what ends up happening is, is Jimmy shoots the bus driver oh, nice. and yeah. Great. And so he shoots him five times. Um, and that, that audio is on the 911 call from the, from the kid. Yeah. So he grabs Ethan and he takes him to his bunker. So when he gets to the bunker, Jimmy calls, not two kids, just, just one kid. Okay. Yep. Just Ethan. Um, and so when he gets to the bunker, he, Jimmy calls 911 and says, I have a hostage. I'm in an underground bunker. The only way police can talk to me is through this PVC pipe that I've got sticking up out of the ground. Um, it's out by the front gate of my property. So the police get there and Jimmy is daring them to take the bunker by force. And he's saying, yeah, come on, take the bunker. If you do, there's going to be a loud boom. So anytime there's um, a kidnapping or anything 
a situation like this, the FBI is involved immediately, right? Right. So the first FBI investigator or negotiator gets there at 8 p.m. that same day. By 9 o'clock, Jimmy says, I'm done talking for the night. This is over. So let's get to the bunker. So this bunker is a six-foot by eight-foot box. So it's just tall enough for a man to stand up in, um, which is why he couldn't take the bus driver. He had to take a kid because another another adult wouldn't be able to get down there with them. That's going to be claustrophobic so, as fuck. Yeah, it's bananas. So gross and smelly. Yeah. So So he's got this hatch, a wooden hatch that closes the bunker, um, and you go down this, you open this hatch, and there's a six-step ladder. And the ladder is at such a steep angle that basically it's, it's almost vertical. And it's in this little entry hatch um, that is 10 feet um, tall and only 23 inches wide. So it's not even two feet wide, this little entryway. Okay. And then you kind of get, it, you know, the entryway, and then there's like a 90-degree turn. And that takes you into the open area of the bunker. All right, so... Anytime there's like a hostage situation, step one is get a camera in, right? So the agents say, look, there's this PVC pipe, so let's string a camera down there, and that way we can see what he's up to. They start stringing this camera down, and that's when they find the first bomb. Oh, fuck. He's got an IED in this PVC pipe. So then the agents kind of step back, and they look around the property. Does this guy have a military background? Say again? Does this guy have a military background? Yeah, he's a Vietnam veteran. Okay, okay. Which they're known for their mental stability after coming back from yeah. Vietnam. Shit. So, so they, so they see this IED in, in the PVC pipe, and they step back and they look around the property, and all of a sudden they notice there's like at least a dozen PVC pipes sticking up out of the ground throughout Great. this property. <laughs> so, it's booby trap. What the fuck? Yep. All right. So, FBI, you know the hostage. Um, Hostage rescue team, the critical incident response unit arrives, and, and they've got profilers, bomb-sniffing dogs, attack dogs, technicians, um, crisis managers, medics, and things like that. So the reason I actually chose this story is a few years back, I was at this conference for special operations um, medical personnel, which I was not one, but I was a contractor, um, and I actually got to listen to a lecture from the lead medic okay and that's kind of the, the where um the perspective that i'm telling the got story it, from got it. so the, the fbi is is talking and and they're saying all right so we're going to do negotiations but if they don't work we're going to assault the bunker and we're going to go down in there and get this kid they're going to what the bunker assault it oh okay okay got it yeah i was so like salt Ethan, the bunker is that some kind of special thing <laughs> that i don't know about yeah you just season it a little season bit season it lightly <laughs> Yeah. So, so, all right. So Ethan has some medical needs and he needs medicine about every eight hours. That's awful. Poor little sweet baby. So they, they convince him to let them send down medicine on the schedule every eight hours. And they're also going to send down like coloring books, crayons, toys and stuff for him to play with. Right. Got it. So they have this plan where every time he opens the hatch to get the medicine, they can kind of see what's going on in this entryway. Right. So they see that he's got steel cables like that you would use for a bike lock. Uh-huh. And those are attached to the um, to the wooden hatch. And those are strung from the wooden hatch down to the rungs on the ladder. So that's what's securing this thing shut. Okay. So that's how they know, like, okay, for, we have to beat this if we're going to get in there first. That's that's the first thing we have to do. Um, and so then they, they convince him to take a phone. 
And once he starts, you know, talking on the phone, that's when he makes his demands because there's always demands, right? So his demand is he wants to switch, swap Ethan for a female TV reporter who's going to broadcast his manifesto. It's always a fucking manifesto. (laughs) So he can just like have a little companionship. Basically. A little conjugal visit. (laughs) So when he delivers his message, he's going to put a bag over his head, fill it with helium, and the reporter's going to hold his hand while he dies. The fuck? With helium? How's he going to die? Tinder moments. I mean, he's just going to suffocate himself, I guess. The fuck? Yeah. Okay. All right, so so now we're in day two, right? So at some point in day two, the FBI is able to get a camera down there. And so I'm at this conference with special forces guys and everything, and he wouldn't even tell them. So this is something, this is obviously like a tradecraft that they're currently using and they don't want to give out. Yeah. <laughs> so so I don't know how they get. And if they told you, they'd have to kill you. So yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So, so, you know, day three is rolling around. People are giving their ideas, you know, and they're like, what if we pump sleeping gas in the bunker? And the FBI is like, no, that didn't work. There was a hostage rescue that we tried, or that was tried in Moscow in 2002. And that shit backfired right quick. So um, we're not going to do that. All right, what about drugging the food? Well, we can't risk that because Ethan might eat it. Um, you know, some reporters are volunteering to trade places with Ethan, but the FBI is not going to send more people down there. Um, so during this time, Jimmy's behavior is getting more and more erratic. Um, and so he's pacing the bunker, looking more and more frazzled. And that's when they see the second bomb. Okay. Yeah. So... Day four. Um, so he's got a TV down there. So the FBI is talking to the news and they're saying, hey, don't try not to broadcast anything like a potential rescue that we're trying to do or anything like that because we know he can see us. Um, and the reason they said this is they had just had a large amount of lumber that was delivered to the site. And what they did is they built four mock-ups of this bunker. And so now they're starting to practice how they're going to get down there, right? Ah. So, they're, yeah, they're basically practicing getting up and down the stairs and, like, they're practicing for when shit goes wrong, they can react appropriately. They're not caught off guard. And amount of money that the taxpayers are charged for all this, probably, like, $10 million. <laughs> uh, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a banana story. So we're on day five. So he's, his moves are cycling faster and faster. You know, they're noticing that, whereas before he was fatherly to um, Ethan, now he's just ignoring him. Oh um, and so at one kid. point... Yeah, and at one point, um, he's opening the hatch to get the medicine, and he sees the rifle of a SWAT team member. So now he's fucking furious. And so now he's, he's, he calls a negotiator, and he says, look, Ethan knows how to shoot this air rifle and set off this bomb. So if I die, he has access to the trigger. So day six, they start to see um, he's getting up, and he's going to the bomb, and he's, like, fooling around with it. He's look, working out the logistics of how he's going to set this off, and he is showing Ethan how to do it. And he calls the negotiators, and he's oh like, the God. deadline's 5.30 tomorrow night. If my demands aren't met by 5.30, I'm dying in this bunker. Day seven. So they meet with the FBI director, who was at the time our friend Bob Mueller, um, and, and they agree, you know, negotiations have failed. we got to start figuring out a way to get in there. So they're saying, all right, the next time we do our medicine delivery, he is going to be in the shaft and we're going to, we're going to blow the hatch and that's when we're going to go. So for this to happen, for this thing to go right, two things need to happen. The first thing is Ethan needs to be nowhere near the hatch. And the second thing is Jimmy has to be in the shaft when they blow it. 
Right. So it's really contingent upon those factors. And if not, then it's, it's a no go. It's not, well, it's not that it's a no go. It's that there's a lot more potential collateral damage that they're going to have to deal with. So they're going in. Right. And so the, the guys that are going in, um, the hatch is so small that they basically can't wear their full kit. So they have like a very small piece of armor, um, a, a knife and a pistol. And that's pretty much all, you know, I'm not a hostage negotiator or an expert or a law person or a forensics person at all. But like, what would happen if, if law enforcement and everybody just said, okay, have fun and, and fucking left. Well, they can't leave. I mean, they can't leave Ethan. Right. But I mean, it's the attention that this guy clearly wants. And for them to meet his demands, we just say, bye. No one's going to pay any attention to you. So they actually had a profiler and who was watching the videos and, and listening to the phone calls. And she basically said, look, if he says he's going to kill Ethan, he will kill Ethan based on everything I, I've learned about him. And does this talk about his parents at all in this? Like what was going on with them? Ethan's? Yeah. Um, it doesn't talk about them all that much. There was some... Um, he didn't have the most stable home life. Oh God. We'll say that. Fuck. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So sorry. No, you're fine. So, all right, we're getting, we're going down, right? We're assaulting this thing. So they blow the hatch and they're ready to go in, but the hatch doesn't open all the way. So they have to pull the hatch off basically like with the, like fucking tow truck or whatever. Jaws of all life. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So they get the hatch open and they're just dropping it and boom, boom, boom. Um, so the first guy drops in, and he gets stuck halfway down the shaft. Oh, fuck. And Jimmy's shooting at him. Great. Shoots, him, uh, shoots at him uh, nine shots, point blank range. But because he's there's this 90-degree turn, he's kind of, like, goosenecking. So he's, like, not looking, but he's holding the gun around the corner and just firing. So he doesn't actually hit the, the FBI guy. So they pull him out. Um, and, you know, a little... To the, the, um, the medic that actually was doing this was the one giving the lecture. And so they pull him out. The guy's like, he's shooting at me. The medic's like, are you a hit? And the guy looks at him and he goes, you tell me. It's like, he's like, I don't fucking know. You tell me if I'm hit. So he's was checking he wearing him body out, armor? Right? Like, yeah, but I mean, it's like the adrenaline. Okay. You know, like it's such a close, yeah. close quarters. I don't know. Okay. I've never been in that kind of situation. Oh, I have. All right. So. <laughs> Just how, kidding. How, 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 so you know. So you it's usual. Right. It's weekend collateral so They pull they pull the guy out and they they're like, "All right, we're dropping the dog." So, ideally oh, when you put when fuck. you put a dog in there, no. The dog is supposed to surprise and distract the guy and then you have the agents go in and take him out, right? Okay. Well, that's fucked. We've lost the element of surprise. He uh. knows they're coming. So, but they're like, "Fuck, we're doing it anyway." So, this no. dog is um she, this is crazy. She's trained to drop into holes and disable suspects. I don't even know how you train that. Oh. But so they drop her down. She gets stuck. Oh. And the medic was talking back. Like on the video, the dog's like freaking out because the dog is ready to go. Oh. And the dog gets stuck and it's like, this isn't working. Get me out of here. Kind of one of those things. Yeah. So they pull the dog out. So they don't know what the fuck's happening. Okay. No dogs so were injured they, during the making of this hostage crisis. No dogs were injured. <laughs> okay, good. Thank God. Okay. So, so it turns out every time that Jimmy was opening the hatch to get the medicine, he was putting another steel cable on there. So he was creating this like webbing halfway down the shaft. Fuck. So he was like fucking prepared. Like a spider so, web of like intricately woven wires. A steel cable. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So now they figured out what they got to do. So they, they 
you know, they blow this, this webbing, they have shotguns, you know, they're, they're using bolt cutters to getting it all, all out there. This entire thing is happening while the medic is checking that first guy for injuries. Okay. Like this is happening so fast. Right. So they get the whole, the shaft cleared. All right. So now they're getting ready to go back in. And the point man is the first one back in. He's like, it's open. We got to go. So he drops in and other, two other agents drop in, three agents drop in in three seconds. Okay. So the first agent drops in and basically kind of, he lands right on his ass and he just falls to his side and lands right on Ethan. Just pure luck. And later he tells the medic, you know, it was just luck that I fell on him. So basically I just covered him up with my body. And the next thing I expected was a gunshot to the back of my head. Remember, we're in a six by eight situation, yeah. right? So a second guy gets in and he falls, same thing, right on his ass. Um, and Jimmy's right in front of him. So he starts shooting. But because Jimmy's so close, he's basically putting his hand right up to the pistol and he's able to like disengage the oh. pistol. Not because he's like skilled or anything. It's just, he's so close. That's fucking crazy. Can you imagine how scary that would be? So the third guy drops in and he starts shooting. Same thing happens. Basically Jimmy's able to like disarm this, this gun. I don't know how just by close quarters. So the third guy is going for his knife, right? So he's got a knife with them. So he's going for his knife. But this time, this, by this time, the second guy has his gun. He's, he's cleared it. It's ready to go. But there's so much smoke. Because when this is all happening, Jimmy has also blown that IED in the, oh, in the PVC pipe. So there's smoke, there's flashbangs, there's, he, you can't see anything in this six by eight bunker. And so the second guy, he says it's so smoky, it's hard to see who's who. So yeah. basically he looks down at the ground, he sees jeans, and he follows the jeans up and eliminates the threat. Killed him. So it's over. Five minutes. Start to finish. Since they've catch. Start to finish. Fuck. All that happened in five fucking minutes. And then Yeah, so he shot five times in the chest, um, in the hands, in the face, neck, everything. Um, and you know, just for safeties, they also cuff him. Um But like what was his agenda? Did it ever say? Like We never find out. There was no reason behind his crazy insanity. We never know anybody what knows. was in his manifesto. Fucking crazy. So Ethan, they pull him out and they send him to the medic and he is unfazed. He's got his little toys that he's playing with and he's, he's like, wow, you army guys are loud. Right. And then he goes, where's that man? man?" Yeah. (laughs) Where's that man? And the lead medic goes, oh, Ethan, you're not going to see him anymore. He's gone. And Ethan goes, oh, okay. And he goes back and plays with his toys. (laughs) Isn't that a crazy story? Man, Jesus. It was it was crazy. And like listening to it from the FBI medic tell, that was there running this thing That's was insane. Bananas. And again, it was, it was an amazing experience. It's like you don't have the background info or info about this Jimmy dude. So it's like, what was his deal? What created this? What did you have your left to kind of just yeah. guess? Speculate yeah. on the insanity. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he, he clearly was unwell. Like, his whole, you know, you don't build an underground bunker if you're, what was you know, you're doing again? fine. It was Jimmy what? Jimmy Lee Dykes. Jimmy Lee Dykes. Yeah. Yeah. Darcy's going to provide the um, the link on that, and I will put that in the show notes, guys, if you want to take a look at this gentleman and, and see if you can find more information on him. Although, it doesn't seem like there's all that much out there on this guy yeah yeah i mean everything i've read is just he was you know he was just one of those standard he lived in the middle of nowhere 
crazy not doing too well Vietnam that yeah and we have no idea what was in his manifesto they didn't to my knowledge they didn't find anything like written or anything so he was just gonna tell it he was he had nothing you know formally down on I guess yeah crazy yeah fucking insane all right, right, guys, we have gone over our hour, but we know that you probably are okay with that because there was some pretty interesting stuff on the show today. But this is the point where we say goodbye for now. So long, farewell, rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, keep them to yourself. Just kidding. <laughs> we love emails. Please send any emails you have to the BFD podcast at gmail.com. I have put the link to that as well, or the information on our email in the show notes as well. Um, please join us again next week when we talk about more weird, wild, wacky stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys.